Thank you so much. Appreciate that. If you would please turn to First Timothy as we continue worshiping. I'd like to continue pointing us to scriptures that help us think through the current events that we're experiencing and to remind us of some things that we need to be reminded of. In a way, it's a, a return to the basics because sometimes in a whirlwind where things seem to be changing so fast, as Dan mentioned, you just need to be reminded of what the basics are, what things you need to continue holding on to in light of what's going on. Um, I read something recently that uh, caused me to begin thinking along uh, these lines, and uh, this is one of those passages that helps bring these three things together um, in my mind, and hopefully you'll see it as we look at it this morning as well. And so 1 Timothy 6, verses 17 through 19, just a few verses there, are words uh, that... Paul writes to Timothy as he encourages him to be faithful in ministry at Ephesus. And you might think, well, this is an instruction for rich people, and I'm not a rich person. Uh, Well, there's two things to consider. Um, It's highly likely that uh, most of us in this room, if not all of us in this room, are much richer than most of the rest of the world in various ways. If we have a house that we live in and it has electricity and indoor plumbing and a TV and a computer and all those things, we're probably much richer than we realize sometimes. The other thing is, though, what Paul talks about in this very short passage um, are principles that apply whether you're uh, materially rich or not. Um, He's just applying truths that apply to all people, but he's addressing it to rich people. And so whether you consider yourself materially rich or not, uh, there are principles in here that I hope we'll see that will encourage us. And basically, I'm, I'm wanting to answer the question, in a culture in which everyone's asking, what's an essential business? You know, what gets to stay open and what gets closed down? Uh, even in Annie going to Masters, they had to answer the question, is her major an essential major or not? If it's essential, she can go into in-person classroom settings. If not, she can't. So this whole issue of essentialness is something that's being discussed all the time in our country. Well, I want to be want us to re, be reminded of what is truly essential. So just look with me at these few verses here in First Timothy six, where it says in verse seventeen, "Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited." Or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of what that which is life indeed. You could argue in these few verses that Paul is talking about the good life. In my translation, the word good is mentioned three different times uh, in this brief passage. And so there's a sense in which he's highlighting the kind of life that the rich people are supposed to live. And he's assuming that just having money doesn't automatically mean you have the good life. The good life isn't materialism. It's not being able to do what you want to do and go where you want to go and live where you want to live and drive what you want to drive. That's not the good life from the Bible's perspective. But he's talking to people that are tempted to think that that is the good life. And he's describing to them and to us what the good life truly is about. 
and it's about the essential business of life. If we were to ask the question, what is the essential business of us as Christians in a pandemic or outside a pandemic? Scriptures that come to mind, for instance, are what we see in 1 Corinthians 13, where Paul could say, if I speak with the tongues of men and of angels but do not have love, I've become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith so as to remove mountains but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver up my body to be burned but do not have love, it profits me nothing. So Paul could say, no matter what you do, if it's not about love, then it's not what life is all about. And so what I want to focus on is three aspects of love that I think are highlighted in this brief passage and certainly can be argued from the rest of Scripture. Love for God, love for people, and love for life. If there's anything that a pandemic will do, it will expose things. And it has exposed us in all kinds of ways. It exposes where our hope is. It exposes whether or not we really love God above other things. It exposes whether we love people or just certain situations, whether or not we love life in an appropriate way. So I just want to briefly remind us of what that's all about um, because I need to be reminded of what that's all about, just like you do. And so the first question might be, is Timothy really talking about love for God? If you look at verse 17, he says, instruct or command those who are rich, which being rich means having an abundance, having more, much more than you really need. Instruct those who are rich in this present world, which means the now age, what's going on right now. They're rich in this time not to be conceited or proud or high-minded or to think that there's something because they have money or they have wealth or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches but on God. And so Paul is saying, now talk to the rich, those who would be considered rich, and tell them not to fix their hope on their riches, not to think that they're somebody because they have it, they must deserve it, you know, God gave it to me because I'm so good, I'm so wonderful, I'm so smart. And he says, no, don't think that you have what you have because you deserve it. God gave it to you graciously. But also don't think that your security and your happiness rest in what you have. But fix your hope on God. And why would he have to say that? It's because we tend to think that way. We tend to think that, well, if I'm truly blessed, it's because there's something good in me. Or if I have a lot of stuff, um, one way or the other, the temptation is to put my hope on that. You know, my 401k or my house and car, my job, whatever it may be, I, I think that's where my security lies, my happiness lies. Matthew 6, verse 24 is one of those uh, verses that highlights the fact that this is really a love issue. Jesus said, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. And so there he's talking about the issue, just like Paul is talking about here, wealth versus God. And he says you can't love wealth and love God. You can't serve wealth and serve God. You can't be devoted to wealth and be devoted to God. 
And so the idea is you either fix your hope on wealth or you fix your hope on God. And whatever you fix your hope on is what you love. Because we love that which will help us in the ways we really want to be helped. We love that thing or that person that will make us happy in the ways we think we need to be happy. Whatever we look to for the help we need and the happiness our hearts long for, that is what we love. And if we look to riches and wealth and things, then we love those things. If that's where our hope for help and happiness is, that's where our love is. That's where our hope is. But if it's on God, fixed on God, then that is where our love is. So you might could say love for God. This is in your notes too. If we were asked, so how can we define love for God? We could say love for God is to live to please God and to be pleased with God. And that's all in believing response to the gospel, the, the good news of God's love for us in Jesus. The reason why I put it this way is, you notice in Matthew 6, Jesus said you can't love or be devoted to God and wealth at the same time. So that you could say, love is about devotion. And in what, in what kind of devotion are we talking about? We're talking about a devotion of obedience that flows out of being satisfied. Now, why would I say that? You can look these up later on. We don't have time to turn to all these scriptures, but in 1 John 5, verse 3, it says this, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. Okay? That we, so, Paul, uh, excuse me, John says, this is what you need to understand about loving God. Loving God is about doing what he tells you to do. You, you can't say, I love God, but I don't care about the Bible. I don't care about obeying God. Those two things don't go together. In fact, loving God is very much about pleasing God, doing God's will, obeying God's word. But John also adds, and his commandments are not burdensome. What does that mean? It means I gladly do it. Now, why would we gladly do something somebody tells us to do? Well, it's kind of like if I went to... Uh, Ethan and Jonathan and Nathan and said, I command you to eat ice cream. I imagine they probably wouldn't say, no, I don't want to eat ice cream. Never. They probably say, I'd be glad to. Thank you for commanding my, my joy. Thank you for commanding my happiness. Thank you for commanding the fulfillment of the desire of my heart. Because that's the only way God commands he always and only commands our happiness. He always and only commands what is truly loving for us and for others. And so that's why John can say, it's not burdensome. If you truly understand God and know God and you understand that he only commands your good and the good of others around you, therefore it's not a burdensome thing. And so that's why I say, to love God is to please God, to do what he says, because you're pleased with God. You see the goodness of God. You've tasted and seen that God is good. And therefore, God commands what is good, and that he's not going to be like what Satan said in the Garden of Eden. You see, God is trying to keep something from you, Adam and Eve. That's why he commanded you not to eat from this tree. He's trying to keep something good. He, he surrounds you with good things, and then he says, no. 
Is that the way God is? Surrounds us with good things and says, don't touch that. You can't have that. That's not the God we serve. That is not God. God is good through and through. And he only commands what is good. And that's why um, being pleased with God is crucial to living to please God. To, To say, you know what, I found in God everything I need and everything I can desire. And he will fulfill my heart's longing for true full and lasting happiness. I don't have to look anyplace else. I'm devoted to him because he's all I need and all I desire. We've mentioned many times C.S. Lewis talking about the fact that we're like ignorant children living in a slum who've been invited to go to the beach and they reject that offer because they can't imagine that anything's better than just what they have in the slum. And he concludes that little story by saying, we are far too easily pleased. You know, if all we want is a big bank account and a nice car and a big house and a good retirement, we're far too easily pleased. There's a God who offers us fellowship with him that is beyond anything that we can fully imagine. That's why the Bible says that God is like a fountain. It says in Jeremiah 2.13, For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So if you picture God as a fountain, how do you please a fountain? Piper's famous for saying, you don't, you don't uh, find a mountain spring and try to bring some water up and dump it in. You don't please a fountain by trying to give something to the fountain. You please a fountain by doing whatever you have to do to drink and be satisfied. That's how you please a fountain. So God says, I command you to do what I command you to do, that you might drink and be satisfied, and that others might drink and be satisfied too. And so when you read my word and I command you to do something hard, just remember I'm commanding you to drink and be satisfied And I'm commanding you to do what will also help others drink and be satisfied. It's a glorious and wonderful, wonderful thing. So God commands us to love him, to be pleased with him, and to live to please him. And that's what you should do in a pandemic. That's what you you should do regardless of what happens. That's what I need to give myself to, is to ask myself, am I living to love God? Am I living to be more pleased with him and to please him more? Is that what drives my life? Is that why I come to church? Is that why I read my Bible? Is that why I hang out with Christian believers? Is that why I do what I do? It's because I want to fuel love for God. The second thing is, love for people, which should flow out of that. In fact, you can't truly love people without truly loving God, because if you don't really love God, you're looking to people for what you need and for the happiness you long for, and if they don't give it to you, you will punish them. You'll manipulate them and then punish them if you can't make them do what you want them to do. So unless your hope is in God, you can't love people. That's why the greatest commandment is to love God, and the second commandment is to love your neighbor as yourself, because that's the only way we can do that. Is Timothy talking about love for people? Yes, he is. It says 
in verse 18, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. If we went to verses like Deuteronomy 10.18, it says, God executes justice for the orphan and the widow and shows his love for the alien by giving him food and clothing. It's a very practical thing to give somebody food and clothing, to do them good like that. And the Bible says that's how God loves people. That's how he's loved all of us in this room and all of us outside this room. It also says in Luke 6.32 and 33, Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what, uh, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. The Lord Jesus parallels loving and doing good. They go together. You can't separate the two. And yet, there's something about this that we need to understand. It's not just about doing something. Because it said in uh, 1 Corinthians 13, if I sacrifice my body, give it up to be burned, but don't have love, it's nothing. That's doing something. That's, that's making a sacrifice. But Paul says that's not worth anything. Why? There has to be a heart behind what you do. So it's both what you do with your hands and what comes out of your heart. The love that's being called for is a desire for the person's good, their ultimate good, their true good, that results in my pursuing, doing them good. That's the whole idea behind the phrase at the end of verse 18, ready to share. The idea that we have a heart that's inclined to share our lives with people, to do good to people because we have a heart for them. We love people. We're, just, we're not just about projects and working down our to-do list. But we're about people. Our to-do list is about four people. Our projects are for people. It's not, it's all about loving people. Um, again, C.S. Lewis could talk about the fact that if we could see people spiritually that, like God sees them, he says we would see them as either one day being immortal uh, horrors or everlasting splendors that every person in this world is on one track or the other. It's going to end up in one of those two places as immortal horrors, speaking of those who reject God, reject Jesus, and end up in the trash can of the universe, which is what hell is pictured as in the New Testament, versus those who are everlasting splendors, those who receive the truth of Christ and who are saved by grace and who end up in heaven um, with God. And the interesting thing is, in that context, he talks about the fact, he says, all day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of these destinations. That means, depending on how we're treating one another and whether or not we're really loving each other, we're either moving people toward the immortal horror scenario or encouraging people toward the everlasting splendor end. And so he's saying that it really should matter how we treat people because they're people made in the image of God. And if they're believers, then they're children of God. And either way, they are immortal souls that have more value and significance than we can imagine, even if we don't think much of them. He's basically saying we should think 
much more of every person we meet than we do. It's sort of like the idea of plants. Um, when you, we should see people as plants, nourish those plants. Um, in Psalm 128, it says, Your wife shall be like a fruitful vine within your house, your children like olive plants around your table. So look at your family this afternoon when you go home and imagine them as plants. And ask yourself, how do you love a plant? You give them what they need to be nourished and to flourish. It doesn't matter whether they're believers or unbelievers. You seek to give them what they need so that they're nourished and they flourish. You, they're not a project. They're, they're not just someone who's incidental to your project list. There's someone that there are people that God wants you to nourish and encourage in their own flourishing, to grow and to thrive. And I need to be reminded of that. The last thing is not only to love God and love people, but to love life. Is First Timothy talking about loving life? And the answer is yes. You notice he says at the end of verse 17, God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. He richly supplies us with all things for, for the purpose of enjoyment. Is that the God you typically think of when you think of God? Do you think of a God who's given you all the good things that you can see around you because he really wants you to enjoy them? Or do you think he probably put them in, you know, in your life just to test you, to see whether or not you really love him, and he really doesn't want you to enjoy them? Well, think about that a lot, because how we look at God makes all the difference in the world. And Paul says, whatever good thing you can find in your life, and this also applies by extension to other things too, we won't get into that. Let's just think about the good things. Whatever good thing you can see in your life, whether it's your wife or your children, your brothers or your sisters, whether it's your job, your car, your house, or whatever it is, the question is, do you think God is upset that you enjoy those things? Do you feel guilty for enjoying those things? Do you think enjoying those things keeps you from loving God? How you answer those questions make much, a great, great difference in our lives. Ecclesiastes, if you read that book, it's basically a book that talks about enjoying life, enjoying the things of life that are God's good gift, but don't forget God. There's no doubt that there's a temptation to forget God in the midst of your good gifts. But Ecclesiastes says, enjoy the gifts that you have. Um, it says, I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in, in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor. It is the gift of God. Enjoy life with the woman whom you love all the days of your fleeting life. This is your reward in life. God gives us good things to enjoy. Uh, William Hendrickson has said, All these things are given to us in order that we may not only partake of them, but may also enjoy them. When we sing, God sings along with us. When you get excited over something and you really enjoy something, do you think God says, Well, I gave him that, but I really didn't intend for him to enjoy it? 
You ever give things to your kids and actually have a greater joy when you find out they really liked what you gave them? Doesn't it bring a greater joy to your heart when you realize, okay, I gave this to my son or my daughter and they really loved it? It brings you greater joy. It doesn't make you say, oh, wow, wish I hadn't given them that because now they enjoy it and they probably won't enjoy me. If we think like that, we're, we're, we're missing what God is telling us. Um, so what is love for life? To love life is to receive everything from God's hand in thanksgiving and to trace everything back to his heart in worship. It's to receive it all as from the hand of God. And that's why I've told the story a number of times about um, how uh, C.S. Lewis also went into the tool shed where it's dark and he's looking at a beam of light and he sees the little particles of uh, dust uh, floating around in the beam of light coming in through the little crack over the door in this dark shed. Then he moves around and he lines up his eye with the beam of light and he's able to see through the crack above the door and see the sun and see the, the leaves blowing in the wind. And he says there's two different experiences in life. There's the, lot, the experience of looking at the beam with the dust particles floating in it and looking along the beam back to the sun. He says both are important. Both are important. We should look very hard at our children and delight in them and rejoice in them and be so excited for the gift that God has given us in our children or in our wives, in our friends, whoever it may be. But we have to get into a position where we look through our children and through our spouses and through our friends back to the Son. And we see that they're all a gift of God to us. There's an interesting uh, quote from Richard Baxter, who was a uh, Puritan pastor. He said, We need to guard our lives against the love of riches and worldly cares. All love for earthly goods, however, is not a sin. Their sweetness is a drop of his love, and they have goodness, excuse me, his goodness imprinted on them. They kindle our love for him as love tokens from our dearest friend. Loving them is a duty, not a sin. What is he saying? He's saying you you should love your car. You should love your house. You should love your wife and your children. You should love your job. You should you should love every aspect of this good life God has blessed you with. Just don't think you deserve it and be proud. And don't think that your hope is in those people or in those things. They will never meet your needs or satisfy your soul. Only God can do that. But make sure that you love it and you thank God for it and you trace it back to Him and say, God, I know... Uh, this wonderful wife you blessed me with, and we'll celebrate 24 years married together tomorrow, is your goodness and sweetness to me. That is the only way you can truly love things. You have to trace them back to the God who gave it to you, and you have to see God in them, God in it. But guard your heart 
because we're tempted to make them idols. We're tempted to require them to meet our needs and to make us happy. And God says, you can't replace me with those good things, but you can worship me in those good things. And I actually command you to do so because that's how you love me. You love the people I've put in your life and you love the life I've given you. So look at the people in your life and ask yourself, are they just people that get in your way for what you really want life to be about? Or are they really people you're committed to loving? And look at your life. Are you thinking, boy, I wish my life was different. I don't like these things about my life. Or are you loving the life God has given you? Whether you're rich or poor, uh, whatever your station in life is, it's all about love for God. So let me just close by asking the question, do you love God? In the sense, are you seeking to live to please Him? Not to try to earn anything, but because you're pleased with Him. You can say with Peter, after Jesus asked him, are you going to leave me too? And Peter says, where are we going to go? You have the words of eternal life. Are you tempted to go anyplace else? You probably are tempted to. Do you want to go anyplace else? If your heart says, no, I found in Jesus, the lover of my soul, I'll not go anywhere, no matter how hard it gets. Do you love people? Do you desire their good and seek to do them good even if they don't return it? That's what God calls us to. And do you love the life God has given you? Do you thank Him for everything? The Bible says give thanks for everything and in everything. And trace it back to God, the giver of all good. Ultimately, the question is do you see the love of God for you? We're going to talk more about that next week because I'm, I'm out of time now. If you can't see the love of God for you, look at the cross. God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this time in your word. We pray that you would encourage us through it to love you, to love people, all the people in our lives to love life, to love the life you've given us. Father, we thank you for loving us. Please communicate in fresh and new ways your love for us and help us to receive it and rejoice in it, to know and believe the love that you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.